reflecting on Jane Austen's Emma. For many of these observations, I am indebted to Marcia McClintock Folsom. The novel is structured into three volumes with an equal number of chapters, 18, 18, and 19, respectively. In the first volume, Emma meets Harriet Smith, who sets the action of volume one into motion. In volume two, two characters never before in Highbury, Mrs. Elton and Frank Churchill, and one who has been long away, Jane Fairfax, help to energize the novel by broadening the social world. They also, quote, displace Emma from the center of her world, end quote. It is possible that we may begin to like Emma more when the focus is not so much on her. This is perhaps one reason why, despite her numerous faults, Emma remains a fairly sympathetic character. Over the course of the novel, Emma experiences three major epiphanies. The first is in Volume 1, Chapter 16, right after Elton's proposal to her, when she realizes that she has done Harriet harm, just as Mr. Knightley had predicted. The second occurs in Volume 3, Chapter 7, at the end of the Box Hill incident, when she realizes she has been cruel to Miss Bates. And the third one is in Volume 3, Chapters 11 and 12, her realization that she has been in love with Mr. Knightley all along. These events take place over a 14-month period, carefully but subtly documented through the changes of seasons and occasional mentions of the months. However, Austin does not draw much attention to the chronology, though it is all there. Marsha McClintock Folsom is among those critics who see in Emma eight major gathering scenes. The first is the John Knightley's visit and dinner at Hartfield in Volume 1, Chapters 11 and 12. The second is Christmas Eve with the Westons at Randall's, Volume 1, Chapters 14 and 15. The Cole's Dinner Party, Volume 2, Chapter 8. The Dinner at Hartfield in Honor of Mrs. Elton, Volume 2, Chapters 16 through 18. The Ball at the Crown Inn, Volume 3, Chapter 2. The Game with Alphabet Blocks at Hartfield, Volume 3, Chapter 5. Strawberry Picking at Donwell Abbey, Chapter 6 of Volume 3. And The Outing to Box Hill, Volume 3, Chapter 7. David Monaghan has identified an important pattern in the novel. When Emma is in familiar surroundings, she is a kinder and more responsible person than when she is in unfamiliar territory where she can sometimes be irresponsible in her conversation and behavior. At the first two dinners at Hartfield and Randall's, places familiar to her, she is kind and considerate of others. At the Coles, where she's never been, she speaks much too freely and recklessly about her mixed feelings for Jane Fairfax to Frank Churchill, whom she barely knows, and also allows herself to imagine that there is a romance between Jane Fairfax and Mr. Dixon, who is married to Jane's best friend. Likewise, when picking strawberries at Donwell Abbey, where she has been before, she is thoughtful and sensitive toward Jane Fairfax. But the next day, venturing out to Box Hill, where she has never been before, she behaves very badly. In the Box Hill incident, it seems that Frank Churchill brings out the worst in Emma, 
Her behavior seems to grow progressively worse under his influence until here she reaches the nadir. She hits bottom. And it may well be due to his influence, the fact that he flatters her. Earlier in the novel, in his debate with Mrs. Weston about Harriet Smith's friendship with Emma, Mr. Knightley expressed his concerns about excessive flattery. He noted that Harriet was a flatterer and that such attention would do Emma no good. Frank Churchill serves a similar function. At least during the Box Hill incident, Frank was especially flattering to Emma with all those remarks about her presiding wherever she goes, saying that Miss Woodhouse was commanding him, and so on. Terry Castle has said that, quote, What is disturbing about the Box Hill incident is that it intimates momentarily a world in disorder and a principle of separation at work in human affairs. For an instant, civility itself seems to break down and the novel verges on nightmare, end quote. But after such incidents, the world of the novel always seems to re-stabilize. Castle goes on to suggest that the novel provides a pleasurable emotional rhythm in which, quote, fears are raised, dangers threatened, only to be assuaged through a process of cathartic recovery and regeneration, end quote. Mr. Knightley's censure of Emma for his insult to Miss Bates underscores his commitment to the principle of noblesse oblige, the social obligations that come with nobility. It was badly done indeed. But notice that even before Emma's insult, we see signs of disorder. Quote, there was a languor, a want of spirits, a want of union, which could not be got over. They separated too much into parties, end quote. We are told this in the first paragraph of the chapter. Mr. Weston tried in vain to make them harmonize better, but there seemed a principle of separation. Another of the novel's recurring motifs is its series of mysteries about Jane Fairfax, about the relationship between Jane and Frank Churchill, about Harriet's birth, and so on. Mysteries that almost suggest the detective genre. For example, the discussion about Mr. Perry setting up his carriage is an important clue that there is some communication between Frank Churchill and Jane Fairfax, because we learn from one of Miss Bates's medleys that only the Coles, the Bates women, and Jane Fairfax knew about Mr. Perry's plan. So Frank's knowledge of it had to come from one of these sources. In the very next scene with the game of alphabet blocks, Frank presents Jane a scrambled version of the word blunder, which she solves, smiles faintly, and brushes the blocks away, but blushes when Harriet speaks the word aloud. And we can combine these clues with Jane's earlier insistence on retrieving her own letters from the post office, during which conversation it is also revealed that Frank Churchill has very distinctive handwriting. As we've discussed previously, the secret engagement of Jane Fairfax and Frank Churchill is a problem because in Austen's world, secrets are generally not presented favorably. Marriages are considered good to the extent that they also benefit the community and not just the two partners in the marriage. And as Emma argues very emphatically to Mrs. Weston, by coming to Highbury with their own feelings engaged, 
Jane and Frank are holding back something that prevents them from being on an equal footing with the rest of the community, and they are able to sit in judgment of the people comparing what they have said. There is supposed to be an openness and honesty among the members of the community. The relationship between Mr. Knightley and Emma is idealized in the very first chapter of the novel, even before they are romantically linked, because they always speak openly and honestly to each other without pretense. The other problem with the secret relationship and the way that Frank handles it, at least, is that he presumes that Emma is not interested in Frank, and he really has no way of knowing that. He is playing with her feelings as well as being rude in front of his fiance. Terry Kessel writes that, quote, in all her novels, Austen shows herself deeply suspicious of couples who shut out the rest of the world or pretend to a kind of superior knowledge. She is hostile toward antisocial human pairings, couples who relate only to one another and contribute nothing to the common good, end quote. We might make a few more observations. Notice that while Mr. Knightley seems to have predicted much of what happens, he doesn't get everything right. He admits that he was wrong about Harriet. He was too harsh in his judgment about her, and in this way he has to move more toward Emma's view of Harriet. The other thing he doesn't get right is that he misjudges Emma's feelings. Despite the fact that he's characterized as being very perceptive, in fact, both of the knightly men are, he misjudges Emma's feelings, thinking she is much more attracted to Frank Churchill than she actually was. So Mr. Knightley usually has superior knowledge, but he is not perfect either. We might also consider whether Emma affirms or contests notions of feminism, an interesting subject for debate. On the one hand, it might be easy to point out that the novel affirms traditional values and gender roles. Marriage, as is the case in so many novels of this period, is the goal and also the means by which events are resolved and stabilized. And it is also true that Emma is the one who has the most growing up to do and has to develop better judgment and comprehension, and that it is usually Mr. Knightley who is her tutor or in some way precipitates her understanding. These points all affirm traditional gender roles, and of course, we must remember that Jane Austen is operating within a society during the Regency period that was quite traditional. On the other hand, Austen gives her female characters a great deal of scope and presents them as active participants in the action. They often initiate events. As a character, Emma is quite intelligent, despite her shortcomings, and has a great deal of influence and power. It's also very important to note that the novel presents a variety of female characters in most of the social situations that females could inhabit during that period. Emma may be at the top of the social hierarchy, well-connected, well-educated, and very well-off, but the novel also gives us characters such as Harriet Smith, who is a natural daughter or illegitimate, without family connections or fortunes. We have Miss Bates and her family who formerly occupied a higher position in society than they do at present. They have fallen in status due to poverty. We have Mrs. Elton, who represents what we might call the new money, 
the rising middle class obtaining their money in trade and therefore becoming more powerful and influential, though not rising in respectability. And of course, we have the Jane Fairfax character, about whose situation much could be said. The novel provides a very pointed critique of the governess trade, memorably described in that exchange between Jane Fairfax and Mrs. Elton as analogous to the slave trade. Nor can we forget Mrs. Weston, who had been a governess, but who has risen by virtue of her marriage to Captain Weston, and who is very genteel and well-educated. So there is a variety of female roles in the novel. A few comments about Emma on the large and small screen. There are several film versions of Emma. 1995 and 1996 were big years for Emma with two period-specific costume dramas and a loose adaptation. And in 2009, the BBC produced a lavish extended version of the novel, some 229 minutes, that aired in the U.S. on Masterpiece. The two mid-1990s costume dramas, if you get a chance to view them, provide two quite different approaches to the text, as pointed out by Carol M. Dole. One version, starring Gwyneth Paltrow and directed by Dennis McGrath, is a Hollywood production in 1996. A British version for the BBC, marketed in America by the A&E Network, starred Kate Beckinsale and was directed by Diarmuid Lawrence. From the same period is an interesting adaptation, Amy Heckerling's 1995 film Clueless, starring Alicia Silverstone as Cher Horowitz, the Emma character. This transplants the Emma plot into an upscale Beverly Hills high school. Both versions of the costume dramas have their particular quirks. Carol M. Dole has pointed out that the British version tends to focus on social class, constantly emphasizing the roles of the servants, as, for example, in the Box Hill scene, where much attention is paid to the servants laboring in livery to transport trunks up the hill. On the other hand, the American version renders the servants almost invisible. Also, the costuming is quite problematic. Gwyneth Paltrow, according to Nora Nakumi, is often dressed like a Greek goddess, with dresses much too low-cut and revealing for the Regency period. In some ways, the loose adaptation Amy Heckerling's Clueless may be the most accurate for American audiences in its depiction of class. We may not understand all the nuances of social class during the Regency period, but most of us can well understand the cliques of high school. Although it completely reworks the Emma plot, once familiar with Austen's novel, it proves surprisingly faithful to it, and it can be fun to try to relate the movie's scenes to the source material and explore how some elements of the novel are transplanted into Beverly Hills in the mid-1990s. For example, the portrait incident is an especially innovative adaptation of the source material. The 2009 BBC production was written by Sandy Welch, directed by Jim O'Hanlon, and stars Ramala Garai as Emma. For the most expansive treatment of the novel, it is hard to beat this production, as the longer miniseries format allows for the most character development and one doesn't feel as rushed through the material. In a feature film of some two hours or less, as is the case 
with aversions from 1995-96, it is inevitable that some incidents must be compressed or omitted entirely, and characters don't have time to develop fully. At nearly four hours, the Ramala Garai version from 2009 gives the production time to breathe, although there are always some departures from the novel for dramatic effect. As a final point, let's revisit for a few moments our earlier discussion about Emma's fortune, said to be worth some £30,000. Earlier, we said that such a sum invested in government bonds that paid 5% would yield an annual income of about £1,500, about 15 times what Jane Austen's father made in a year as a vicar, and that's the interest on Emma's fortune. Remember that governesses typically earned from about 12 to 20 pounds per year, plus room and board. But how much would 30,000 pounds be worth in today's money, say, in U.S. dollars? It turns out that there are different ways of computing the values, some based on how much prices have inflated over the years, others based on the growth in wages. However, there's a really interesting website that allows you to play around with these conversions. It's called measuringworth.com. This site is really helpful, first, because it explains some of the complexities of currency conversion across different time periods, and because it provides a number of different calculators for the U.S., U.K., Japan, and China currencies from 1774 through 2011. If we use 1815 as the starting point, that is, the time Austin was writing the novel, and choose 2011 as the most recent year for which calculations are available, here was the answer I received when I entered 30,000 pounds. Quote, when using the consumer price index or relative price index, the average value in 2011 of 30,000 pounds from 1815 is $2,640,000. The range of values is from 1,700,000 to $3,480,000. This answer is better if the subject is a consumer good or something else of interest to an individual. End of quote. So Emma's fortune would be comparable to over $2.5 million today. Not bad. Austin did say that Emma was handsome, clever, and rich, didn't she? And on that note, we take our leave of Jane Austen and the incomparable Emma Woodhouse. <laughs>